0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Russus J. Rushdoney Copyright 1961 Dorothy Rushtuni and the Rushtuni Irrevocable Trust Calcedon, Ross House Books Chapter 4. The Kingdom of God and the School The definitions of the home and the school are relatively simple matters. A very real problem, however, confronts us in the definition of the church, a concept which must be understood if education is to be free. Here we find an area of considerable confusion, and some thinkers ready to assert conclusions, unaware of their far-reaching implications. Again, reform thinkers have not always themselves been consistent with their insight here. The question is this, is the institutional church to be identified with the visible church? The Roman Catholic Church holds that the visible and invisible church are very closely linked and that the visible church is the institutional church. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church is the kingdom of God on earth. The immediate implications of this for everyday life are far-reaching. The world is divided into two realms. First, the realm of grace, which is the kingdom of God or the church, and second, the realm of nature, which is the rest of the world. As a consequence, the only way in which the home of the school, and the government can be linked with God, is through the institutional church, in that they possess no direct relationship with Christ, and hence no direct relationship with God. Their relationship being mediated and subordinate to the institutional church, it becomes necessary for the state, school, and home to be under the authority of the church in every avenue of life, and, as members of an Inferior realm, the realm of nature, to be under constant suspicion and guard. The realm of nature is seen as in constant tension with the realm of grace and only able to serve God as it is dominated by the authority of grace, the Church. Now, as Deweyward Speer, Van Til, Vollenhoven, and others have pointed out, this fundamental dichotomy between grace and nature is altogether unbiblical and wrong. The dichotomy is not between grace and nature, but between grace and sin, so that when any realm of nature enters into the state of grace, it becomes part thereby of the visible church. To define the kingdom of God or the visible church in terms of the institutional church is to take the road to Rome to drift towards the subordination of every area of life to the church. Many Protestants indeed share in this position and view every avenue of life with suspicion, apart from ecclesiastical domination. But, for us, the biblical church, the kingdom of God on earth, is to be identified with the reign of God in the hearts of men wherever they are. Consequently, we must hold that the Christian home is a part of the visible church, as is the Christian school, the Christian state, and the Christian man in his calling. Godly men everywhere in their calling serving as priests of the kingdom of God on earth. The Christian, as scientist, manifests the activity of the visible church, of the kingdom of God on earth, in his particular sphere of activity. The Christian farmer as he subdues the earth and exercises dominion in the name of God, is thereby manifesting the activity of the visible church in his particular sphere. Consequently, the institutional church is definitely not one area above all the other areas of life, but is one aspect of the kingdom of God on earth among many others. For us, therefore, The institutional church, together with, and not above, the school, the home, the Christian man in whatever calling or sphere of activity is his, equally represents the visible church, the kingdom of God. The Christian school is a part of the visible church, and every school has a responsibility, if it be true to its function, to become a manifestation of the kingdom, The entire concept has been well summarized by Speer in his study of Deweyward. If the visible church is equated with the church as an institution, then the Roman Catholic dualism between nature and grace cannot be avoided. According to it, temporal life belongs to the sphere of nature. Christ is not the direct king of secular life. The sphere of faith is separate. It is a sphere of grace. Society is not a part of the body of Christ, but in its inner structure, society is worldly and devoid of grace. It has its origin and end in temporal existence and, as such, does not lead to eternal life. The only tie that the sphere of nature can have with the sphere of grace is indirect. Society can be bound only to Christ by grace. It can only approach God through the institution of the Church. The latter alone can afford a haven for the sphere of nature. Nature is not, quote, idle in the Lord, end quote, insofar as it is connected with the Church. The latter cannot rest until it dominates human life in its entirety. If the consequences of the dualism between nature and grace are to be avoided, we must unequivocally maintain that the invisible church includes more than the institutional life of the church. The visible church is all of temporal society, insofar as it derives its life from Jesus Christ and employs its energy to advance his kingdom. A Christian marriage, a Christian family, state, school, or any other Christian relationship which acknowledges Christ as the King of Heaven and of Earth belongs to the visible church. Thus, the church as an institution, as a household of faith, is on the same level with all other relationships. The visible church, or the Kingdom of God, manifests itself in a multiplicity of forms, forms in which the body of Christ is revealed, The church as an institution is not the revelation of the body of Christ but it is one revelation of it. The body of Christ is revealed in other forms. Compare Ephesians 5.23. This point cannot be emphasized too strongly. The integrity of life depends upon it. In view of the confusion of many churches at this point and their malpractice, the suspicion of many people with regard to the church is clearly justified. In this view, the institutional church is limited to her task of proclaiming the word of God to every creature, administering the sacraments to believers and their children, and governing governing herself in terms of the word. The church, to be a church, must be a true church a revelation of the body of Christ. The family is, sociologically and religiously, the basic institution, man's first and truest government, school, state and church. Man's basic emotional and psychic needs are met in terms of the family. Man, the image of God, here exercises dominion as a priest in Christ, his wife a helpmeet, that he might fulfill his image mandate. The fifth commandment, calling for honor of parents, is properly in the first table of the law, being associated with Godward duties and the love of God. This direct association of honoring parents with obedience to God is apparent in the following laws. Leviticus 19.3 Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths, I am the Lord your God. Exodus 21, 15 and 17 Called for death for smiting father and for cursing father or mother. Compare Leviticus 29. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 Called for the death penalty for incorrigible delinquents on the complaint of the parents and confirmation by the local council. Deuteronomy 22, 20 to 25 Leviticus twenty ten the death penalty for adultery, witness to the centrality of any offence against the home. To disobey any true authority is to disobey God, but especially so with parents. Contempt of the home is a contempt of God, and rebellion against parents is associated with rebellion against God. Psychologically, the two are linked. The typology of the home Its relationship typically to the fatherhood of God and to the headship of Christ over his church is deeply written in the constitution of man. Inevitably, rebellion against one is rebellion against the other. Thus, the authority of the home is of tremendous significance. In terms of all this, the significance of the Christian school begins to come into focus. The Christian school is a manifestation of the visible church and at the same time an extension of the home. It has therefore a relationship to God and to the visible church that makes it an intensely important and a central part of the church. The authority of the home with its tremendous psychological relationship of the authority of the Father to God, rebellion against the home equated with Sabbath breaking and rebellion against God carries over to the school The school wields a power in the life of the child which it dare not use casually. For the child, the school is his world in a tremendous sense. And if the school is not prepared to meet that heavy responsibility, it can do harm to the true church. To illustrate this, the child who begins school is convinced immediately that the teacher knows everything, often expressing surprise that parents know as much as the teacher. The school, thus, is in position to undermine other cultural agencies. The school is a world of authority and influence in a very real sense representing the authority of God as a part of the visible church and, again, the authority of the Father delegated. For a school to abuse its authority is to uproot a child in his religious and family relationships and to produce a rootlessness of mind and personality devastating to both the person and his society. Unhappily, in too much of secular education, this rootlessness is the hallmark of the successful student. And the more advanced the training, the more radical the homelessness it produces. Education, in this sense, is anti-human and schizophrenic. A particularly brilliant scholar, Dr. Eugen Rosenstock-Hussi, has spoken of the radical polytheism of modern life, where a girl's faith was once monotheistic, in that she shared the faith and was brought up under the authority of her father, having no other doctrines or values than his, now she is exposed in school and college to a variety of antagonistic creeds and doctrines. Quote, a modern girl's education is polytheistic, End quote. thus, a man marries not. Quote, one man's daughter, but many men's pupil, end quote, the product of quote, an unknown number of gods, deities, ideals, demons, powers, end quote. quote. Girls are exposed to a destruction of their sound instinct by all the false prophets of a golden calf society, end quote. We do live in an unquestionably polytheistic world and at every turn art education press television movies and state press forward the claims of alien gods at every corner we are face to face with a bale demanding compliance or worship and the very complexity of modern life tempts many to concede a polytheistic world this polytheism must be met. It cannot be met by retreat into a hopeless isolationism and retreat from the world. Neither cannot be met by making common cause with polytheism, or by a surrender of, of any aspect of the kingdom, in the name of strategy. It can be met educationally, if the Christian school recognizes the dimensions of the task and address itself to the problem. It cannot be an agency of withdrawal nor of insulation but rather of preparation in the recognition that the battle must be joined that no person's life can escape the tensions of a polytheistic world and that the answer is not in isolation but in conquest. The Christian school in dealing with the problem of polytheistic and rootless man must deal with man in terms of the heart to avoid the contemporary atomization of man. While a particular subject may be strictly intellectual in its scope, the whole child is present in the school and the assimilation of learning is in terms of the context of the whole. The heart in romantic thought is equated with the emotions of man. Romanticism has so thoroughly infiltrated modern thinking that this connotation has become almost inevitable for man today. An examination of the biblical concept of the heart gives us a radically different picture. Physiologically, the heart is the center of the body, and the springs, or issues of life, physiologically, are out of the heart. It feeds, it nourishes, it keeps alive the whole body. It is spoken of in Scripture as the soul of the flesh. Leviticus 17.11 the soul of the flesh is in the blood, end quote. again in Genesis nine four, seventeen eleven, Leviticus seventeen fourteen, Deuteronomy twelve twenty three, we find the expression quote, the blood of the soul, end quote. Thus, the blood is the soul of the flesh, and the heart is the physiological center of the blood, appropriating, assimilating. Apportioning all things to the body. The spiritual heart of which Scripture speaks is analogous. The physical and spiritual are closely linked, and the centre of the psychic soul, differentiated from the soul of the flesh, is the heart. All spiritual life comes from this heart. It is the centre of all willing and knowing. We are told of its diverse aspects and functions, to cite a few instances. One Job twenty seven six the source of conscience two Proverbs seventeen sixteen, the source of intellect, knowing, moral discernment. three 1 Kings five twelve Proverbs ten eight wise heart four Psalm fifty one twelve pure heart five Genesis twenty five following. Honest and righteous heart six Psalm ten four perverse heart seven Jeremiah three hundred seventeen wicked and perverse heart eight Ezekiel thirty eight two haughty heart nine Genesis eight twenty one the source of evil ten Jeremiah seventeen nine desperately wicked eleven. Deuteronomy 6.6 6. Revelation is addressed to the heart. 12. Leviticus 26.41 Deuteronomy 10.16 Exodus 4.21 Wicked and uncircumcised heart. 13. Deuteronomy 36 Circumcise the heart. 14. Psalms 33.11 104.15 Genesis 8.21 Exodus 14.5 1 Kings 8.33, Isaiah 30.26, 66.14, Deuteronomy 29.4, 4.9, source of intellectual and emotional life, of thought, memory, perception, will, imagination, joy, sorrow, anger, etc., 15, 2 Chronicles 17.6, Psalm 37, one, Jeremiah four seven deuteronomy 1113 first 1 kings 861 jeremiah 2340 this seat of religious feeling 16 deuteronomy 717 8 seventeen 9, four isaiah 1413 the man himself as against false fronts 17 first peter 3 four the heart is the hidden man the real man 18 Ezekiel 36.26 A new heart I will give you. From these verses, it is apparent that regeneration does not mean that man is changed as far as his aptitudes are concerned. He remains the same man, but with a new heart. Again, the interaction and parallelism between body and spirit, or, more properly, the fundamental unity between body and spirit is asserted, not merely a psychosomatic one, but the reverse as well, so that the body can affect the heart, and the heart the body. This is seen, for example, in First Samuel twenty-five, thirty-six, and thirty-seven. Nabal's heart was very merry within him, for he was very drunken. End quote. Then again, quote, his heart died within him, and he became a stone. End quote. The body and the spirit, being a unity, share in their responses. Central to all this is the heart, out of which flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23-27 to In desert countries, the pollution of springs is a fearful crime, destroying life. The pollution of the springs of our life is held to be comparable and is a spiritual and physical suicide, in that the whole man is affected. Revelation speaks to the heart, and the true church or kingdom in every realm rests on the foundation of a regenerated heart. For secular education, the biblical concept of the heart is mythological, and much of secular education concerns itself with the mind. This is particularly true of Quote basic education, end quote, which addresses itself to the mind of the child. Such education, as it has prevailed in much of the past history of education in the United States, has supposed a predominantly rural country with no more radical divisions in the community than between Baptist and Presbyterian. The curriculum showed the impact of Christian concepts. The Bible, read each day, was also the basic presupposition of all present. Such a background for basic education no longer exists. It functions in isolation, in terms of the training and development of the mind of the child, and with the presupposition that the liberation of man is basically an intellectual affair, and that, socially, knowledge is power. This is an essentially religious position and its consequences are a hastening of atomization and rootlessness. It is productive of an unhappy schizophrenia. A psychiatrist pinpointed this fact recently in calling attention to a representative, to a representative case. A young woman who had been jilted just prior to her wedding had gradually developed serious personality disorders as a consequence her failure to cope with her problem was due directly to an intellectual fallacy. She had concluded that there was one mature intellectual response only possible to her in terms of an intellectual concept of the mature mind and had accordingly denied herself the emotional response of indignation and anger. The consequence of that denial was the breakdown of the whole person. The intellectual fallacy is a reduction of man to mind and the insistence that not the heart with its concept of wholeness, but the mind must be the man. As a result, there is the characteristic ambivalence of modern man between a sterile intellectualism and a frenetic emotionalism. There is, There is the intellectual denial of prejudices, together with the intensified but suppressed emotional intensity of them. To return to the older form of basic education requires a cultural background, which made possible the assumption of vast segments of learning and provided a common faith. Without that, basic education, while often ministering ably to the intellectual needs of the child in terms of subject knowledge, carries with it presuppositions of a dangerous sort, it is significant that basic education succeeds best where a stable background exists, or in Christian schools, where a basic faith gives wholeness in some measure. On the other hand, progressive education, with its emphasis on educating the whole child, becomes immediately and inevitably a religious doctrine and a salvationist program. Its concern is inevitably soteric, involving a salvation and saviour directly in contradiction to Christian faith. The plan of salvation is adjustment, the rearrangement of the elements of society or of personality, but not a changed heart. It is a concept of social salvation, and no better description of it exists than the lonely crowd. The group, society, becomes the god, and morals become mores. The result is a radical alienation of the individual from himself. The consequences of all this were apparent in North Korean communist brainwashing. By separating man from himself and identifying him, not in terms of God, but the group, by divorcing mind and emotions, and by denying the reality of the heart, man is unable to be himself and to retain his integrity as a man. To understand this, let us suppose ourselves a prisoner being subjected to brainwashing. We are asked to write our autobiography and to include therein our attitude to the 1939-1941 to 1941, to the European War. Let us assume that we were isolationists, and so stated it. The immediate implication we would be confronted with would be the charge of pro-Hitlerism, it would be futile to defend ourselves, stating our anti-Hitler feelings, our anti-interventionism, or to assert the integrity of our heart. Our heart is a non-existent thing. Our moral principles are irrelevant. Activity alone matters. And in terms of this, we were in the wrong group and stand self-condemned. Christians alone were equipped to withstand consistently the implications of brainwashing, for them, the person was not an eroded concept, nor the intellectual fallacy a compelling one. Knowing that out of the heart are the issues of life, the Christian could face the social and intellectual fallacies with the confidence of his integrity before God. The Christian school, because it does not work in a vacuum, is not under obligation to assume a Total responsibility for the child. Because it is aware of the nature of the child, it can still work within its area with the total perspective in mind. This, of course, is true only if this school be theologically and philosophically aware of its true biblical presuppositions. Unhappily, this is too infrequently true, even of theological seminaries. One of the amusing yet wretched facts about theological schools is a proneness to the intellectual or rational fallacy in the assumption that the logical sequence is the human sequence. Having been taught proper procedure in matters of administration or discipline, the young minister assumes that this is the true human procedure with unhappy consequences. To equate man with his mind and to expect rational responses and to expect rational responses and results is no small fallacy and yet it underlies too much thinking and acting today. Inevitably every educator today recognises the religious implications of education as drawn to the question of values whether they be progressive or basic in their approach. Their dilemma is a real one. If a value be seen as objective eternal and binding on all men, it leads ultimately to a limitation on man and an assertion of the eternal decree. If values are not objectively valid, they are, in essence, only mores, the standards of the pack, and nothing more. And all education is in terms of a fundamental concept or faith which is, in essence, religious. The religious question has indeed been raised by the churches, and the public schools subjected to some challenge and pressure on that score. But it should be noted that, independent of all such activity, the schools themselves have insistently raised the religious issue, sometimes failing to identify it as such, but nonetheless raising it. Again, various public groups have been insistent on raising the question. The American Council on Education has urged a study of the question of religion in public education on the basis of the cultural crisis, quote, religion is either central in human life or it is inconsequential, end quote. Quote, the spiritual replenishment of modern culture requires capitalization of religious forces and an attempt to meet the present crisis apart from such a measure is, quote, sheer cultural madness, end quote, the teaching of religion is thus a necessity. Our culture, having a, quote, Judeo-Christian, end quote, foundation, its continued existence requires revitalization in terms of those basic beliefs which nurture its life. But how is religion to be taught? The, quote, common core of religious belief, end quote, concept is clearly rejected as fallacious. Such an attempt would lead only to the creation of a new religion, quote, a public school sect, which would take its place alongside the existing faiths and compete with them end quote. that religion in the schools would offend some is recognized on the other hand, what concept will not equality is taught in schools with fewer believers in Christianity, but taught because the nation feels committed to it as part of the quote, democratic ideal. End quote. The absolute separation of church and state is an impossibility, and the constitution separates the institution rather than the faith. Again, religion is taught, albeit anti-Christian religion, under other names, To call supernaturalism a religion and naturalism a philosophy, and on that basis to exclude the one and embrace the other, is, we think, a form of self-deception. Quote. The basic responsibility of the public schools is that they have an obligation to give the young an understanding of the mainspring of our culture and its standards. But it cannot be a merely objective study. To approach the subject of religion as though it were a matter of neutrality or indifference quote, is to be unneutral, to weigh the scales against any concern with religion. End quote. Without being committed to a sectarian position, the public school must give importance to the reality of specific commitment and give pupils opportunity for independent study. The problem is a difficult one, requiring trained teachers and the cooperation of the churches with the program. But, religion being inseparably bound up with the culture as a whole, the problem must be met. This is an important and sensitive study of the subject and yet, like others, has not been fruitful. The one answer not faced is the abolition of the public school system. There is an implicit medievalism here that needs attention. The Christian is constantly told that he must face up to the fact of a pluralistic world and rightly so. Theologically, it is erroneous to expect a common cultural picture and any theology operating on that basis needs to be suspect. The progression of time and the epistemological development of history require a growing self-consciousness which will emphasize pluralism. There are churches and liberal Protestantism with its social gospel ideas of the kingdom of God and church union is prominent among them which work for new medievalism a monolithic culture with an organized culture. But, more than ever before, our world cannot trust such a monolithic power of control to anyone nor aspire to such an enforced concept of culture. Pluralism must be accepted and the best hope of man in true culture seen in free and pluralistic terms. The public school is a substitute institution for the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages and is a thoroughly medieval concept. A single culture is demanded, and the public school must create it. Hence, every group believing in and seeking to control that new leviathan and grand monolith seeks control of the public school. But a free and pluralistic society requires the abolition of the public school and the tax support of the school in favour of a pluralistic education. The competitive aspect will ensure the quality of education and the cultural implications of various faiths, philosophies, and opinions can be given freedom to develop and make their contribution. Our society today, despite its pretensions, is not pluralistic, except with regard to religion, which it considers a matter of indifference. In all else, it is monolithic. The Orthodox Christian can face a pluralistic society in the confidence that his faith can, given such freedoms, establish its power and superiority culturally and religiously. He must realize that, today, agnosticism has secured the status of an established church by means of the institution of the public school, and this new religion must be disestablished. Another consideration of the problem of religion and education comes from the Rockefeller report on education, whose primary concern was with education and the individual. According to the report, the ultimate source of greatness in a nation is the greatness of its individuals. Only a free society can give the individual the opportunity to develop his potentialities. The central value is the overriding importance of human dignity, it is not a means but an end. It expresses our notion of what constitutes a good life and our ultimate values. End quote. The report is aware of the conflict between equality and excellence and resolves it in terms of the limitation of equality to mean equal opportunity and equal status before the law. To insist on a radical concept of equality is to force even more serious inequalities on society. A recognition of basic values is imperative in education. Science, for example, needs integrity if society is to have integrity. Federal aid to education is assumed irreversible. Finally, the question of values is faced and it is recognised as essential to the future of our culture. Every value today is subject to danger and survival requires that values be fought for, but what are they? The answer is a remarkable one. Quote, We would not wish to impose upon students a rigidly defined set of values. Each student is free to vary the nature of his commitment, but this freedom must be understood in its true light. We believe that the individual should be free and morally responsible, the two are inseparable. The fact that we tolerate differing values must not be confused with moral neutrality. Such tolerance must be built upon a base of moral commitment. Otherwise, it degenerates into a flaccid indifference, purged of all belief and devotion. In short, we will wish to allow wide latitude in the choice of values, but we must assume that education is a process that should be infused with meaning and purpose, that everyone will have deeply held beliefs, that every young American will wish to serve the values which have nurtured him and made possible his education and his freedom as an individual. A clearer demonstration that intelligence is not necessarily productive of sense could hardly be desired, The only thing such an education can teach is the total social irrelevance of all values. In such a concept, what is the individual morally responsible to? Since the ultimate goal and the end is the overriding importance of human dignity, what other value can exist or compare with it? Is this not rather education into undiluted egoism? And is it not precisely the moral neutrality they wish to avoid? Every man is his own God and the ultimate arbiter of value. Let neither law nor education dare to interfere with this overriding importance and sanctity of man. Lacking the transcendental standard which Scripture provides, other systems inevitably turn to an imminent one and absolutize the state, the individual, or some other aspect of life. Russell Kirk has raised the pertinent question, quote, Can there be an end or aim to anything without a religious interpretation of life? Quote. For many today who claim to be irreligious, their god is, as Kirk states, Demos. These imminent gods of the modern world create an absolute authority on the human level which, in the name of those gods whether communism, democracy, liberty or equality manifest a demand for totalitarian obedience The university, as Kirk demonstrates seeks the same kind of obedience in its realm to its own particular immanent gods The only safeguard against all this is a consistent biblical faith. This means that the institutional church cannot be identified with the totality of the church or the kingdom of God and thereby made that order incarnated or manifested in history. Moreover, the authority of the church must be biblical, strictly ministerial and never legislative in terms of the will and purpose of God as manifested in Scripture. The authority of the church is in the area of the proclamation of the word of God the administration of the sacraments and the government of its own inner life as an institution. Christianity destroys itself if it absolutizes an imminent authority. There has been another attempt to solve the contemporary dilemma that needs mention. The beatnik interest in Zen Buddhism is a manifestation of it. It is an attempt to find a new source of meaning for life and society by evading the whole issue of religion, of meaning, in favor of aesthetics. Oriental culture, some centuries ago, lost all faith in the concept of truth, found relativism to be a deadly doctrine in its naked form, and took refuge in aestheticism, in beauty as a substitute for truth. The result was a long eclipse and stagnation, now rapidly being set aside for Western absolutist concepts, usually Marxism, sometimes Christianity, often other philosophical alternatives. The idea has not been without its appeal to Western man and has appeared in partial form in pragmatism, so that Eugen rosenstock in his perceptive study of the Christian future, speaks of it as, our invasion by China, end quote, but pragmatism has been inevitably religious and has merely substituted new absolutes for older ones. The process of withdrawal from the concept of truth described by George Sansom in A History of Japan to 1334 requires an aristocratic luxury and isolation which, while some writers have sought, modern life does not permit. The beatnik, the happy and blessed man by his own definition, seeks to find this life of beatitude in an isolation of self from all responsibility, value, meaning and truth, only to find himself in isolation from life, and in effect, a lover of death. As the world grows more complex, the demands of life become more implacable even as its promises abound. In the face of all this, Our confidence is that the God who created it and ordained that we should be kings over creation will guide, sustain, and prosper us as we work in conformity to his mandate and in terms of his word. The Reconstructionist
1: Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.